Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This morning we reach the end of Jesus' Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6. Our text is from John chapter 6, verse 52 through verse 59. We read these words. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Verse 59, the end of our text, does something that a modern storyteller would do at the beginning of the story. It sets the scene. We discover from John now that all of this discourse on the bread of life that Jesus has been given has taken place at the synagogue in Capernaum. In other words, Jesus, as a rabbi visiting the synagogue, has delivered a sermon. And now that we know this, in hindsight, we can go back and look at the discourse and we see certain hallmarks that follow a traditional rabbinical pattern. The text of Jesus' sermon is in Exodus 16. Uh, the words that he's preaching on are these. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Exodus 16 tells the story of manna, the miraculous bread from heaven that God sent down to feed the children of Israel in the wilderness. And that passage was a traditional lectionary reading in the temple era for the Passover. John told us already at the beginning of chapter 6 that these events take place during Passover. And so this is the text that is read at the synagogue, and then Jesus begins to teach on this passage, and the people in the audience uh, give him feedback. They talk back to him during the sermon. Now the sermon, as I said, follows a traditional rabbinical pattern. It starts with a passage from the law, in Exodus 16, but the tradition was that when the reading from the law was given, the teacher would get up and he would bring a reading from the prophets. And the reading from the prophets was meant to help understand or interpret the reading from the law. So we can see even during synagogue worship, this principle, this timeless principle that scripture interprets scripture, the best way to understand what one passage says is to read it in the context of other passages. All too often when we read the Bible, we read its statements as if one can cancel out the other, when in fact they're meant to harmonize, to fit together. 
So Jesus is commenting on Exodus 16, and later in the passage, uh, what we saw last time, he will cite Isaiah 53, verse 13, as a, a passage that gives insight into the story of the manna from heaven. Now, it's interesting, too, because it turns out during Jesus' sermon, he's been getting a lot of pushback. As we said before, when John talks about the Jews objecting or the Jews grumbling, that term, the Jews, is referring to the leaders of the synagogue. It's a term that John uses specifically when he's talking about the authorities, the people who, until Jesus came along, were accustomed to being listened to. Now, Jesus comes along, and of course, these former leaders, they feel overshadowed, and they begin to object and even to grumble and to dispute at the things that they're saying. So if you've ever wondered, what is the biblical way to respond to a sermon? As you're listening, based on John 6, we learn that the biblical way is to dispute and to grumble for the person who's giving the sermon. I would encourage you to try that out to see how that works. If you look at Jesus' sermon that we've covered so far, Jesus actually has a four-part sermon based on the text from Exodus 16. Uh, the words, again, are, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus actually takes that sentence and he divides it into four parts and he addresses each of the four parts. So the first part is He gave them. And the second is bread. And the third is from heaven. So He gave them. Jesus points out in chapter 6, verse 32, that it was not Moses who gave the manna from heaven. It was actually his father who gave it. It was God himself. He says, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, about that bread, Jesus says, I am the bread of life in verse 35. So the true bread from heaven is Christ himself. He's not only the bread, that's his second point, but he is the bread from heaven. Jesus himself has come from the presence of the Father. Jesus is the fulfillment, in other words, of the passage he cites in Isaiah 54, which tells us that God himself will teach his people. And Jesus is essentially saying, that's what's happening now. I am teaching my people. Which goes to show that uh, Jesus' sermon, like any good sermon, has for its subject, Jesus himself. Jesus is preaching about Jesus. And now we get to the final part of that statement, the last point in Jesus' sermon, which is based on the words to eat. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's what we're going to be talking about. Jesus says in verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So the first question we need to ask is the same question that the Jewish leaders asked, which is how can Jesus give us his flesh to eat? How is that possible? The second thing we'll talk about is whether or not Jesus is talking about communion here, because obviously there are some resonances in this passage with the Lord's Supper. And then finally, we'll ask the question, if Jesus gives us his flesh to eat, how is it that we actually feed on Christ? So let's start with the objection, with the grumbling. The skeptics in the audience object to Jesus' words, and, and here's the question they ask. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? He says we have to eat his flesh. That seems absurd. It seems crazy. 
that he would ask us to do something like this. Now, it's interesting to note how Jesus reacts to this objection. Now, Jesus could say something like this. Jesus could say, hey, don't be so literal. I'm just using a figure of speech. I can't actually give you my flesh to eat, obviously. I'm just trying to make a sort of poetic point. And oftentimes when we approach a passage like this, that's exactly the spirit in which we approach it. We treat Jesus' words as, as if they're just a figure of speech, as if Jesus is saying something that's unnecessarily confusing, and it would have been better, perhaps, if he had used uh, clearer, more concrete, more literal language. It wouldn't have been as hard for people to listen to. But Jesus doesn't rush to clear up the confusion. He doesn't rush to replace his objectionable words with words that will be more appealing to his audience. Instead, when they ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus responds as if to say, not only can I give you my flesh to eat, but you must eat it in order to live. This is verse 53. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, in the Greek, it is amen, amen, I say to you. You get the idea, amen, amen. This is true. This is true indeed. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So not only can he give it, but in order to live, we must eat it. Now, this same doubling down, that Jesus employs here in John 6 happens earlier in John's Gospel in chapter 3 when John tells us about this late-night meeting between Nicodemus, one of the Jewish leaders, and Jesus. And Jesus, in talking to Nicodemus, says to him that he must be born again. And when Nicodemus hears this, he raises an objection. He grumbles. He disputes a little bit. He says, uh, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's John 3, verse 4. Again, Jesus doesn't rush to reassure him. He doesn't apologize for speaking metaphorically and, and, and leading to confusion. Instead, he doubles down. He insists on the literalness of what he is saying. In verses 5 and 6, we read Jesus' response, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. So the new birth that Jesus talks to Nicodemus about, it is spiritual, not physical. And yet that new birth is real. It is spiritual, but it is real. In the same way, in John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking of spiritual eating rather than physical. And yet the eating that he's talking about is real. And he won't let us dismiss it as merely figurative. He's not willing to back off on the language that he's chosen. It's important, not only the idea, but the way that he chooses to communicate it. Now, this is metaphorical language that Jesus is using. He's using metaphorical language, but he's not using it because the birth or the meal are not literal. He's using it because they are not physical. They are real. It's just that they're of such a high order of reality 
that we can only talk about these things. We can only comprehend them in signs, in symbols, in metaphorical language. All too often, as 21st century people, we assume that the only things that are real are the things that are physical. And in order for something to be real, it must be physical. Yet Jesus speaks of spiritual things as real, as literal. They are literal. They are more real, more literal perhaps, even than the physical things that we take for granted. So Jesus gives his flesh. He says, I can give it and you must eat it. But how can he give his flesh? Well, it's because of the incarnation that Jesus has flesh to give in the first place, because he took on human flesh in the incarnation. And because Jesus incarnate was both fully God and fully man, he is able to give that flesh as a sacrifice. And at the same time, he's able to be the high priest who offers up that flesh as the sacrifice. Jesus is offering himself up as the sacrificial lamb. Now, because of Jesus' full obedience, the sacrifice of his flesh really does atone for sin. Because of that obedience, the flesh of Christ sacrificed really can pay the price of sin. So he can give us his flesh as a sacrifice. The question is, though, how do you feed on it? How do you eat the flesh of Christ? And the answer seems to be obvious. Jesus must be talking here about communion. He must be talking about the sacrifice, the uh, sacrifice pictured in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So is he? Is Jesus talking about communion here? It seems obvious, but it's impossible to read verses 52 through 59 of John chapter 6 and not think about communion. Jesus speaks here of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And at the Last Supper, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says that the bread is his body and the cup is the new covenant in his blood. How could we not think about communion when we hear this sermon that Jesus preaches in Capernaum? Well, but there is a problem. There is a problem And if we interpret Scripture with Scripture, we'll quickly see what the problem is. So in verse 54, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you could look at that sentence, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And that word has, imagine it as an equal sign. What Jesus is saying is, If you feed on my flesh, if you drink my blood, you will have eternal life. The the action of eating equals eternal life. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, listen to Paul's words. When Paul writes about the Lord's Supper, he says this, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So it's possible to take communion and not have eternal life. It is possible to take communion and not be raised up on the last day. Only those who, as Paul says, discern the body, receive the life that is promised. 
So how do we understand that? How do we understand the difference there? Now, as we said earlier, the ancient principle of interpretation is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So these two statements cannot cancel each other out. It's not that Jesus is right and Paul is wrong, or Paul is right and Jesus is wrong. Instead, the two sayings have to be harmonized. We have to understand them together. So it is true that if you eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood, you will have eternal life. And yet, it is also true that you can partake of communion and actually eat and drink judgment on yourself. Not life, but judgment. The Westminster Larger Catechism addresses this idea. And you've heard me talk about this before, uh, the idea of being a worthy receiver. The benefits that are promised in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper really are experienced by the people who partake if they communicate worthily. What does that mean? Well, one thing it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean if they're good enough. Worthiness here does not mean if you meet a certain standard of behavior or a certain standard of righteousness. Instead, it's something else. Listen to the larger catechism, question 170. It says this, They that worthily communicate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper do therein feed upon the body and blood of Christ. So if you communicate worthily, you do feed on the body and blood of Christ. Not after a corporeal or carnal, but in a spiritual manner, it says. So not, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. Yet, truly, and really. Like we said before, something can be spiritual, but also literal, also real. It doesn't have to be physical in order to be real. So spiritual, yet truly and really. While by faith they receive and apply to themselves Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. So how do you communicate worthily? You do it by communicating in faith in Christ crucified. You come forward and you receive having faith in Christ crucified. Calvin says, It is a mockery to dream of any way of eating the flesh of Christ without faith, since faith alone is the mouth, so to speak, and the stomach of the soul. It is by faith that the soul eats and drinks, by faith that we communicate worthily, faith specifically in Christ crucified. So, technically, no. Our text is not speaking directly about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And yet, it is in a way, because the sermon in John 6 and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper both point to the same reality. This is a sermon about the same thing that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is about. This leads Calvin to say that Christ intended that the Holy Supper should be, as it were, a seal and confirmation of this sermon. The, the theology of the Sermon of John 6 is perhaps the richest explanation of what it is that happens when we communicate with Christ in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper with faith in Christ crucified. So how do we feed on Christ? What does it mean to say to have faith in Christ crucified? 
It is faith in Christ crucified that brings us into union with him. All of the benefits of salvation, Paul tells us, for example, in Ephesians 1, over and over again, these are ours because we are in Christ, because we are in him, in Christ, in Christ, in him. Over and over, he repeats this. It's important to Paul that we understand that all that we have, the fulfillment of all of the covenant promises, comes because of our union with Christ. This is a mystical union. In other words, it's hard to comprehend exactly all that it entails. If you ever sat down and tried to make a list of what it means to be one with Christ, to be in Christ, it's inexhaustible, the layers of meaning in the statement. For our purposes, though, when we mean, when we say uh, we're in Christ, think specifically of being joined to him in his death and resurrection being joined to him in his death and resurrection, the way that Paul talks about aspiring to know Jesus in his death and resurrection. That's the union that we're talking about. And it is that union that the Lord's Supper signifies. In the ancient world, there was an idiomatic way of speaking. If you wanted to describe someone who was really close to you, a really close companion, you might say that he eats my bread. In Psalm 41, verse 9, the Bible speaks this way. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The betrayal is that much greater because it's a betrayal by one who ate your bread, one who was in close communion with you. In John chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus says that this psalm actually refers prophetically to the betrayal of of Judas. So when Jesus calls us to eat the bread, he's calling us into companionship. He's calling us into a close relationship. Come close to me, he says. Join with me. Be in union with me. And yet what he says is more than that. Eat my bread, Jesus says, because the bread is my body given for you. Jesus calls you into a closer bond, a deeper union than any you've ever experienced before. He calls you to be closer to him than you are to anyone else in this world, closer than you are to yourself. Be one with me, he says. Be in me, and I will be in you. This is indeed a mystical union, one we cannot comprehend or explain, and yet everything, all our hope depends on it. We can speak of it only in metaphors and symbols and in signs. Eat my flesh, Jesus says. And why this emphasis on the bread as flesh? Well, the bread as flesh pictures specifically the sacrifice that Jesus makes as the slain lamb. Right? When we say partake in faith, when we say have faith, we mean something more than just kind of a generic belief in God. More than, than, well, I believe there is a God. And actually, we mean more than just believing in Jesus. Believing that Jesus is real, that Jesus loves you, all of that. It's actually more than that. Specifically, believing in Christ crucified. Having faith in the atoning sacrifice for sin that Jesus has made. A faith 
whose object is the cross, a faith whose object is the Lamb who was slain. Calvin says that the only bond of union and the way by which He becomes one with us is when our faith relies on His death. When our faith relies on His death. Our union with Christ results from faith in His sacrificial death. The death we remember at the Lord's table. We discern the body by receiving with faith faith in the Lamb who was slain. If you think about the objection that the Jewish leaders at Capernaum raise and the objection that Nicodemus raises in John 3, I think you can't take them at face value. So a lot of times we read this passage and we think that the reason why the people are grumbling is that they think Jesus is suggesting that they should indulge in cannibalism that they're worried that Jesus wants them to literally uh, eat his body and drink his blood right there, and they're just reluctant to uh, to dig into that cannibalistic feast, and that's why uh, they draw back. But to read this text this way would be like going back to John 3 and thinking that Nicodemus honestly believes that Jesus intends for him to enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time. I think he knows that's not what Jesus is saying. He throws that out as a sort of reductio ad absurdum. I think that's true in John 6 as well. In other words, these people are taking the teaching of Jesus and they're trying to render it absurd, ridiculous, in their restatements of it so that it cannot touch them. Why? Why are they so concerned to render it uh, harmless? Why do they want to distance themselves from what Jesus is saying? I think it's because they have a deep emotional need to evade the issue, evade the point that he's making. And the point is this, that we must rely on his death for our life. Jesus is speaking here of dependence, and the kind of dependence that he's describing is absolute. It's as if he were saying, you can't live without my flesh. You can't live without my death. Your need, in other words, runs uncomfortably deep. When we talk about our need for Jesus, the way that we talk about that need minimizes the reality. We tell ourselves that we need Jesus to be our friends, that we need Jesus to help us out when times are tough. But Jesus says, you need me to be in you. You need me to die for you. You need me for everything, because without me, you cannot live. Christ's words, if we took them seriously, paint a picture of us that makes us so needy and so vulnerable that we want to shut our eyes to it. We want to find any way to deny it, to make it absurd, ridiculous on its face so that we don't have to listen to it because it hurts to be so dependent. It hurts to be so needy. When you imagine yourself absolutely needy, you imagine that something could happen to you, a heart attack, stroke that would render you insensible and totally dependent on your loved ones. Um, most of us are like, you know, 
I wouldn't want that. I'd rather you just pull the plug. I'm squeamish enough to where when I hurt myself just a little bit, uh, I tell Lori, well, I've had a good life, and now it's over. <laughs> Do not resuscitate. And yet, there's a lesson to be learned in neediness. My aunt was a very independent woman, a world traveler, a public speaker, lived a full and rich life, but in her prime, she developed a neurological disorder, and slowly she became unable to walk, unable to speak even, and spent the last decade of her life totally dependent, unable to do anything for herself. She had to rely on my uncle for literally everything. Her world had been so big, and, and suddenly it was reduced and became so small. My uncle did everything for her, and over the years, people would see him and they would think he must be a saint because he does everything for her. He waits on her hand and foot. She couldn't live without him. He must be a saint. But at her funeral, he mentioned this. People say this about me, but it's not true. I'm not a saint. The years that he took care of her, the, the years that he met her every need. He was happy to do it. He was proud to do it because he loved her. It was a privilege for him to supply all her needs. It may be hard to think of yourself as needy like that without being filled with anxiety, but your need for Christ is greater than my aunt's need for my uncle was. You're more dependent, not less, but remember, there was a time when you were absolutely dependent, completely needy and vulnerable, and yet you were content, completely content. It was when you were first born, as a little child. Last week, Lori and I spent some time with Caleb and Kayla Coffey and with their two kids, Emerson and Lucas. There are study in contrast. Emerson is two years old, and already she considers herself pretty grown up. She doesn't need you to tell her what to do. She doesn't need you to do things for her. She knows what she wants and believes that she can get it. She has everything figured out, even uh, to the extent of knowing where you should be sitting. And if I don't sit in the chair that she wants me to sit in, she yells at me and tells me you're supposed to be sitting in that chair. She's in control of her world. We've all been like that as, as early as we learned to talk. For as long as we've been able to communicate, we were telling our parents and anyone who would listen that we were grown up, that we were independent, that we didn't need them to run our lives for us, that we could do it all on our own. But Lucas, Emerson's brother, he's completely different. He's two months old, and he is entirely needy. As I watched Kayla holding him on the couch, I recognize that this is the neediest person in the room. Like, he depends on his parents for literally everything. Lucas needs everything done for him, yet he has faith that everything will be done because the ones who brought him into the world love him. Now, he has no idea what love is or how to talk about it, his idea of love must consist of signs and impressions and, 
and metaphors, if you will. And yet, he believes with greater certainty than any of us could uh, manage. None of us have that kind of faith that everything that we need will be given to us. And so the thought of dependence frightens us. We hate to think of ourselves being so needy because we don't believe those needs will be met. We're not as independent as we think we are. We're not as self-reliant as we tell ourselves. You can hold on to your illusion of independence and scoff at the flesh and blood of Christ. Or you can have faith, a childlike faith in Christ crucified. As long as you cling to your independence, your independence from Christ and his cross, all you'll ever feel stirring up inside of you is the anxiety. Because in your heart you know that it isn't true, that you have a need that you cannot meet. But faith, faith in Christ crucified, can bring the kind of contentment that comes from feeling the true extent of your neediness and at the same time recognizing God's desire to provide all that you need because he loves you. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.